Welcome to Talking Health Tech. My name is Peter Birch. This is a podcast of conversations with key players and influencers to promote innovation and collaboration for better healthcare enabled by technology. Here with me today is Dr. Marcus Tan. Marcus is the founder, CEO, and medical director of Health Engine, one of Australia's largest online healthcare marketplaces, helping millions of patients connect with thousands of healthcare providers nationally. His vision for Health Engine is to be a global leading platform that revolutionizes the access and experience of healthcare for patients and providers. Marcus is a University of Western Australia medical graduate with an executive MBA from the Australian Graduate School of Management. He's an experienced GP, healthcare executive, and company director with over 20 years of clinical and commercial experience. His diverse career spans the health, technology, investment, and philanthropic sectors. Marcus, how are you going? G'day, Pete. How are you? Really good. Really good. You're all the way over on the other side of the country, right? Is that yes, tough? living the West Coast life. Absolutely. <laughs> living the island in the island life at the moment. We've always thought we were special, so uh, that's right. <laughs> hey, so so thanks for joining. It's it's taken this long for us to, to get on the show and have a chat. So it, it's good that we've been able to sync up a time. Looking forward to delving into it. Set the scene. Tell us all about Health Engine. A lot of people would know, you know, who you guys are and what you do. But in your own words, who's the customer? What do you do? And what problem do you solve? Yeah. So I think, I mean, as you're right. I think most people will probably know a little bit about our story, but we, we started in 2006. So, you know, as, as you mentioned at the beginning, I'm a GP by background. And, you know, back in 2006, I found myself sitting there at my desk looking to refer a patient to a specialist and having to pull a you know, paper-based directory out of my desk drawer and thinking to myself, like, why are we still relying on paper-based directories mm. in the age of the internet? Mm. And just basically sought to solve a problem for myself. And so our origins are around an online directory. You, you'll possibly recall that in, in 2006, you know, directories it was starting to become a bit of a thing. Google was starting to, you know, like this is kind of pre-iPhone, right? So, you know, this is a long time ago. Yeah. And, and, and interestingly, you know, we were starting to get quite a lot of traction in terms of people starting to use the site and so on. But one of the biggest issues that we found was is that you know, as, a, as a business or something to try and be sustainable, it's quite an expensive you know, sort of endeavor to try and keep directories up to date and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. And we actually found that in an environment where um, most people were monetizing sort of directories through classifiers listings and that sort of thing, a lot of people weren't actually needing marketing, right? Providers were, there was actually a little bit of an undersupply of doctors. And you know, so you know, they, they were kind of full from day one, right? Mm. So why do we need marketing? Um, and so it was, it was, we spent many, many years trying to eke out, you know, sort of living off fumes and sort of self-funding and, and try to just keep it going. And, and I think the thing that really kind of changed our business somewhat was when in 2011, we actually discovered a company called ZocDoc in the US that actually had sort of used online bookings as a way of improving their directory. And that kind of made sense to us because we kind of said, look, you know, directories are kind of the who, what, where of healthcare what you know there's another dimension in the when and the availability that's pretty critical for a lot of patients particularly to be able to you know work out whether they can access healthcare in a, in a timely fashion and at that time online bookings wasn't a thing but in fact we were looking around for people to actually do online bookings so that we could help surface up those times and actually found that no one was doing it not even the practice management software vendors and so we sort of thought okay well i guess we should just do it ourselves and so we actually created this really dodgy sort of manual process of publishing times and you know having people receive their bookings through this sidebar you know and, and look in some ways we've still got that as a process because some patients some practices don't like um, the integration or don't want the integration and just want to have full control and and and, and but that kind of triggered off this sort of wave of online bookings and you know, we, we never thought that actually it was going to work. But, um, you know, as we started having that sort of closed loop of patients actually finding the booking on our directory, 
uh, sorry, find an appointment time and then basically booking and the practice is going, hey, so that, that patient showed up. That kind of changed our business. And in, in many ways, you know, sort of we're, we're very proud of the, the fact that we kind of brought the whole idea of online bookings into more of the mainstream in, in, in Australian healthcare. I guess in that time and, you know, traffic continued to grow and, and we got funded through, you know, sort of venture capital and these sorts of you know, investors, you know, we've sort of tried to, con- we've turned the sort of product into more of a consumer platform. And we talk a lot about marketplaces and so on, but primarily our, our, our business is in healthcare system navigation. It's about helping patients actually kind of find the right care at the right place at the right time. And, you know, so, so really, I guess we kind of have kind of crafted a home, home for your healthcare type of app. So it makes it easier for patients to be able to, you know, sort of get a better, more seamless experience. They can manage all their healthcare to find, connect, you know, in, in the one place. And, you know, in many ways, a lot of patients kind of don't care what software vendor, like, you know, like providers use, they just want it to be seamless. And so that's where we've gone to sort of creating an ecosystem where we've kind of integrated into the 25 major sort of PMS systems around the country. And, and that sort of, you know, ha- has meant that we can, have you sort of book with a GP as well as a dentist, as well as a physio, as well as, you know, your specialist all in one place and manage it all. And, and that's the sort of interconnectivity of, of healthcare that we're kind of still a little bit missing, you know, between providers, but uh, we're at least going to start with the patient and pack the patient at the beginning, at the center of it. No, that's awesome. Thank you for that that kind of overview. I, I didn't know that it didn't start with online booking. So that's a, it's a good progressive kind of story and it makes a lot of sense. So, mm. so how big's the team now and, and where is everyone based? Yeah, so, so we're, we're about 100, 110. You know, that's uh, mostly based in or headquartered in Perth. But we've got a small team in Sydney as well. So we're an office just above the Apple store there. And yeah, you know, it's been an interesting challenge trying to manage a, a remote team and, you know, like being based in Perth, it's not exactly the hub of commercial, um, you know, activity. So, you know, certainly not for tech companies. So, yeah, so I do do a fair amount of travel um, back and forth between the East Coast and West Coast. Yeah, yeah. Well, you wouldn't be doing a, a fair bit of travel at the moment, though. We're in the midst of social distancing and uh, lockdowns and, and working from home. So how, how's that whole transition gone for, for, for you and the team at, at Health Engine? Uh, well, it's actually um, strangely not hugely different in the sense that, you know, I mean, you know, we've, well, firstly, we've been working from home for a little over a month now. And, uh, you know, most of our systems are cloud-based and a lot of people work off laptops. And so, you know, to actually just get people to sort of uproot and go home wasn't particularly hard. We actually have a work-from-home policy as well where, you know, we do allow people to work from home if it makes sense. And so it, it hasn't really been a huge issue in that regard. I mean, I guess it's a bit of an equalizer for us actually being based in Perth that, you know, you don't have to now travel to do a lot of business meetings because mm. people are happy to do it, uh, you know, yeah. uh, virtually, which is kind of great, actually. You yeah. save a lot of time and money. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, look, you know, I think it's always, it's, it's always very difficult collaborating and, and moving quickly in a complex environment when you are kind of working remotely. So it's in that sense, it's probably, you know, harder in terms of just getting our product or making sure that it all makes sense. But I think partially the major issue that we're seeing is mostly just around the social stuff, you know, like the, you know, it's just less water cooler talk. It's harder to maintain work-life balance when you're basically at home, you kind of kind of work all the time now and there's nothing else to do. So it's just stuff like that. And, you know, maintaining culture and and your communications is is pretty tricky when, you know, it's not as easy to be as visible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, I understand. So so what about the product then? How has Health Engine adapted to to respond to the needs of, say, clinicians or or patients in light of COVID-19? Obviously, for the first few weeks in March, it was just a crazy moving feast of all sorts of stuff, right? I mean, practices were going out of their minds, wondering whether they were going to get infected, whether they need to close their doors, how they were going to deal with, you know, um, with um, seeing patients remotely, you know, and and so so it was was really quite crazy. And of course, a lot of the government um, policy that came out 
was so it was changing so much, particularly around you know qualifications for telehealth rebates and all that sort of stuff through MBS. You know, we were really just trying to help practices sort of adapt to the the, the, the new world. And so it was just a huge rush of, you know, sort of making sure that patients had um, sufficient information and the right information sort of, you know, directing them to the right resources and information. Because we have a whole bunch of articles and other things that we're sort of at the, at the consumer front end, people are actually finding and looking. So we wanted to make sure that that was all correct. But actually at the point of booking, you know, we also had to have a whole bunch of triage flows to make sure that they were appropriately triaged so that they weren't just coming in and booking online and is fronting up and, you know, they were completely inappropriate to, to come in face to face. All that sort of stuff was changing and it was very fluid. And of course, the last thing was, you know, just giving um, um, practitioners the kind of tools to be able to do remote consultations. So telehealth was, I mean, as you're probably aware, it's, it's sort of been years in the making and hardly any adoption. And this has kind of catalyzed, you know, mind you, with doctors and my colleagues, like, you know, because I still see patients. And I know that, like, you know, most of my colleagues were still very skeptical about telehealth and, you know, what scope of work you can actually safely do and, you know, whether it was good medicine, all that sort of stuff. So there are actually quite a lot of skeptical doctors still, but really without much choice, they have kind of embraced telehealth. And, you know, and hopefully there'll be some value seen and, you know, over time, the uh, habits that are formed kind of go, actually, it's not so bad, right? So, so, so you know, so we've, we've created a, the so end-to-end, we, we talked about an end-to-end sort of, you know, the directory to be able to find telehealth providers, the ability to sort of um, book online, the ability to have it integrated into their PMS so it's all seamless and then have secure video, you know, which is something that they were, Actually, that, that was something that was probably fairly interesting is that we actually started to note that telehealth is, everybody assumes it's kind of video consults, right? Actually, 65% on our platform, and actually when I speak to other telehealth providers, they're actually saying about even up to 80% are actually just using the phone alone. Mm-hmm. And, and, and you can understand that because I think a lot of people kind of go, oh, look, you know, the phone's the easier technology. It's less, you know, like it's there. I don't have to, you know, turn on, I don't have to rely on the internet. I don't have to rely on webcams. I don't have to switch on and learn a new system. Or enter a 17-character so you- password that you had to enter at the start of this interview. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> right? So, you know, like it's just less friction. Yeah. And so you can completely understand that. Where I think people are starting to look into and seeing that, hey, there are actually some limitations to being on the phone because, you know, in, in face-to-face, you actually have the ability to use all your senses, you know, sight, smell, yeah. touch, you know, all that. And when you go to um, telehealth, like you're, if you're just on the phone, you're only listening and that, that's, that's important, but it's, you know, you're missing out on all mm. the other senses. Mm. At least with video, you've got some sight. And there's some rapport building that you kind of lose a little bit if you don't have sight. And so I think there's, you know, people are starting to realize there are limitations and that they can increase their scope of what they can see safely by using video. And so they're kind of looking more into that. But it's kind of a, you know, drip, 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 slow adoption, sort of testing the waters, foot in the, you know, foot in the water sort of thing that, mm. uh, that we're seeing. Have you got any numbers yet, like in terms of the, the utilization? Like how's the response been from uh, like doctors, clinics, practice managers, patients and all of that? I mean, it's early days, but are people actually using telehealth? Oh, yeah, 100%. I mean, it's, you know, because no choice, right? I mean, yeah. a lot of practices, I don't want to see patients face-to-face until they're really clear about whether they're actually um, at high risk of COVID or, you know, or, or infection in general. And um, so they're using a lot of triage, and I think that's entirely appropriate. We're, we're, you know, I mean, we in the first basically few days of launching it, I mean, we had several thousand practitioners just self-serve and join the platform, right? right. So, and that continues to grow. And, and, and I'd expect others would be seeing the same sort of thing. So, so, you know, and, and I'm hearing things like, you know, sort of you know, 200,000 appointments a day, like, you know, like, you know, that's that type of number, like, you know, like um, happening. So, so it's, 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 
yeah, it's certainly taking on, and mm. and I I expect that to continue to grow as as this continues. You know, the, the COVID crisis continues. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As you mentioned, and you're a GP yourself. You still see patients. Have you performed any teleconsults yet? And and if so, how have you found it? <laughs> yeah. Look, I mean, you know, it's it's funny, right? Because like in some way, shape, or form, I bet most doctors actually have done telehealth, right? Whether mm. it's a phone consult, and, and you know, the fact that it was Medicare not not Medicare rebatable was actually the biggest impediment That's to true. to the adoption, and, and you know, but. People have done, you know, I talk through phone results all the time with patients as an example, right? Like, you know, I get family members and friends send me photos of their particular skin lesion that they're wondering whether like, you know, is that something that we should be worried about, you know, all the time, right? So, and that's, so it's, it's so telehealth has kind of been around for a while and, and people sort of have done it probably a little bit more informally. I think that it's, you know, it's, it's a question of whether you can incorporate it into a, into a much as a much larger proportion of your day to day workflow. That is the issue, yeah. and you know, like, and of course, if you're working from home or like, you know, your, your practice isn't open, you know, that sort of changes the the, the mix of it. But it is the disruption of workflow and, and how safe and confident you feel about it. Mm. Um, so, yeah. yeah. What what about for any other? You know, we can go into that a bit more. Do you have any tips for other GPs that might be? on that hesitant side or have tried and have struggled with it and you say that they've got to use it. They've got no choice. I mean, are there any kind of tips you can provide in relation to like the process or the tech or the systems or whatever? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, so I think, you know, I mean, for, for me, a lot of it is just trying to preserve workflows um, so that it's, it becomes still relatively um, efficient in the way that you're seeing patients and so on. We know that there's a bit of a drop in patient numbers pretty much across the board for a lot of practices. So, you know, now you have a little bit more time, but ideally you want to just maintain a certain workplace. So my, my sense is in speaking to a few other practices is that actually chunking up and actually dedicating a, a, you know, a part of your session to telehealth and then, you know, probably in the morning and then having your afternoon session be your face to face so that, you know, if you have triage patients in the morning and then get them to come in the afternoon or the next day, that kind of works a lot better. Whereas you have to sort of jump on tech, jump off tech, jump on tech, jump off tech, and, and then have to run around wondering whether you have to clean the, you know, cleaning the, yeah. the, the, the waiting room or the, or your clinic, you know, sort of your, your rooms yep. that, that it, it just becomes really messy. So I think just trying to chunk it up is probably a little bit better. And then just having a checklist, like, you know, like, you know, a lot of people won't have done telehealth in a significant, serious way. And so just having a checklist of the things that you need to do, like, you know, even just identifying the patient is now new because you haven't actually seen them and you don't, you know, you, you, if it's just a voice on the other end, who do you know, who do you, who are you actually talking to? Yep. It's not something you have to necessarily do at a clinic level, but as a practitioner, but, you know, it's something that you have to now do as a, in telehealth, making sure they're safe, you know, all that sort of stuff that is normally part of a consult. You now have to front end a little bit of that. So having a good checklist and, and actually the other list is a blacklist, right? So being really clear about what you will and won't do and, you know, and at the point where you get a little bit more experience, like, you know, with telly, like then you can either add stuff to your checklist or to your blacklist or relax your blacklist a little bit as you feel more comfortable and confident. I think these are the sorts of things that will help at least preserve a little bit of patient safety and safety yeah. to yourself as well. Yeah, it's a good systematic way. It's interesting. Mm. I, I, I interviewed another CEO yesterday for the podcast for an episode which will come out two weeks before your episode and he said mm. the exact same thing in relation to chunking up so i can confirm you did not copy his answer but when it was <laughs> yes. released it sounds like you did but no 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 you, you both had the same Al alignment alignment is very important alignment yes. in the industry it's yeah so yes. that's good that's good yeah. uh, <laughs> um hey look more broadly then you know we've seen 
more and more entrepreneurs, whether it's doctors or software developers, anyone trying to solve some tricky problems in healthcare using technology, not just now, but in the last, you know, 12, 24 months and more. You've got a broad background, like I mentioned in in your bio too. Do you have any advice for any emerging digital health startups that might be considering entering the market or that might be thinking about getting stuck in this crazy digital health startup land? Uh, I think, you know, you, you'll find that um, like most of these um, startups, you, you, the team is absolutely critical, right? So the composition of your team is is something that people need to look at. And so as a founder, I mean, I'm not a technologist yeah. in the sense that I can't code. I couldn't code to save my life, right? Yep. I love technology, but like I just, I'm just not technical in that sense. So, you know, as the domain guy, that's what I bring. I bring the domain expertise and, and that's fine. So I kind of understand the sector problems and sort of kind of become the voice of the customer to some extent. But you know, having a good sort of team around you around the techno, if you're a technology company, having a good technical team around you and product team around you is really important, obviously, and having someone you can trust. Because, you know, in, in a lot of ways, just like with most other industries, if you don't really know it well, it's actually very hard to manage it. So somebody who does know it better, like, you know, um, less likely have the wool pull over their eyes around, you know, sort of times to develop and, you know, costs and, and that sort of thing. So, um, so I'd, I'd certainly recommend that. I think that the, the third wheel of it in, you know, in health tech particularly is that you, you want the domain guy, you want the technology guy or product guy, but you probably also want somebody that's commercial as well. So if you're the domain expert, but you're not particularly commercial, I've been kind of lucky to have been working in a lot of commercial environments. So I kind of wear both those hats. But if you don't have that, having a solid business development, sort of sales, you know, sort of, you know, commercial person in that business, that's very numerate and financial as well. I think that probably helps. So, so having those three sort of skill sets to me is, is, is pretty important. As far as, you know, just digital health, look, you know, my, my, it's, it's, you know, some, some would argue that, you know, our health engine, you guys have, you know, have done so well. Yeah, that's great. Except we almost died three times along the way. Like, you know, we've raised a lot of money, but like, you know, it's, it's a, uh, it just takes longer. It's just much more expensive. It's just because the adoption curves are so much harder, right, to get through. It's just such a highly regulated conservative industry. And, you know, if you're trying to innovate in a space like that, it's actually just really, really hard to find a sustainable business model. So, so just plan for that, right? And, and I guess to that extent, you know, sort of moving fast and breaking things, which is sort of the, the mantra of a lot of technology companies in this, you know, sort of in, in, in Silicon Valley and so on, you just can't afford to do that in healthcare, right? Like, I mean, you know, you, you want to move fast, but you just don't want to break so many things, and, mm. you know, especially if lives are at risk or whatever. You know, we're, we're sort of a little bit different in the sense that we've kind of more in the consumer, you know, sort of consumer end, whereas we're not sort of a class one or class two medical device, you know, yeah. like, you know, um, that's regulated. But, you know, you, you kind of get the point that it is something that you just still could be very, very conscious about. Totally. Hey, just on that too, when you talk about investors and it's always, you know, a challenge for, I guess, the CEO for, of health tech or digital health companies in, I guess, aligning the expectations of investors who are putting, you know, their money in expecting a return. They may be investing in other portfolios or other industries that, that expect, say, a much faster return in a shorter period of time. And and like you say, it just doesn't really work like that in the in the health tech industry. You need time to be able to to get these things, you know, to to start growing how do you how do you align you know some of these because you've got some big like some some high profile investors you know amongst your you know group too how did you go about kind of aligning those expectations of you know them wanting a fast return i assume i'm completely guessing but the, but also you know the 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 actual kind of environment that it's you know going to take time for this thing to to start growing and and expanding yeah, it's, it's a really good question and it's really, really hard. I mean, you know, I think it depends on um, who the investor is and trying to get a little bit more clear about what they're wanting from the investment before you take their money. Yeah. And, you know, pay, everybody talks about patient capital, right? Like, you know, the sort of 
capital that is completely aligned with your purpose and you know they're just happy to fund you know the end goal and you know and this is wonderful for healthcare and everybody's affected by healthcare so you know you can it's it's very heartfelt and and so on i think that's great except to the extent that there are a lot of institutional investors and, and investors in general, when they put in their money, it's not philanthropic. I mean, it, it's, there's an aspect of it that is, but there is an aspect of it that is, hey, look, we actually need to generate a return within a certain period of time and our fund life is X and, you know, we need to make sure that, you know, we can get you through it. Yeah. And of course, most venture, most venture investors, you know, are looking for high growth, high return sort of businesses, right? And, and you're either going to hit it out of the park or you're going to die, you know, like a, you know, like a, a, a valiant death, but, you know, but yeah. die nonetheless. Yeah. And so it's actually sort of, it's almost binary, right? So, so mm. I think that there's, a, there, there's a risk here that if you don't have investors that are aligned to the mission um, entirely and they're just looking for quick returns, they're going to get disappointed because healthcare is just going to take longer. And if they don't kind of get that, that's a problem. I guess the way we kind of navigated this, and I'm not 100% sure we're there yet, but, you know, there, there is a aspect of it that is about saying, look, you know, if this is partly strategic for your, you know, as an investment, and, and, and you know, like it, it's been well known that we've had Seven West Media and previously Telstra on the register. Yeah. Telstra Ventures, who are actually our, our shareholder, are actually no longer part of Telstra. So, you know, they're actually just an independent fund of their own now, and they're the fund that um, still sits on our board. But having these sorts of companies sort of, you know, making sure that they understand that, you know, the value that we bring into a broader piece, you know, from a strategic perspective is, is important. And therefore, they'll tend to be a bit more sort of patient. Whereas funds like Sequoia, who we also have, who have a fixed limited life on when they can be in the mm. investment, they can sometimes be a little bit impatient or, you know, like, or, and, and but to be fair, they've been actually very good. But, you know, I think that there are certain sometimes timing and, and, and growth expectations that can sometimes be a bit misaligned. And so you've got to sometimes manage that. And, and so, you know, I think that, that's why I sometimes struggle a little bit with, and not necessarily even just digital health startups, but just startups in general to in tech who sort of go to listing too early because in some ways, like, you know, the listed markets are so um, quarterly driven that like, you know, you can't actually think very long-term, like you, you have to end up appeasing the short-term sort of stuff. And, and I think, you know, and I understand why people do it because access to capital isn't easy, but you end up creating a problem of your own in, in a different way. So look, it, it, I think bottom line is that it's, it's hard, right? Like yeah. I think the easiest thing to do if you're a startup, if you really, really want to fund is to try and find a sustainable business model and not bootstrap it as long as you can. And then if you can find family offices or like, you know, angel investors or private money that is actually ha happy to back you um, for, you know, as long as, you know, as, as you can, like um, who actually see the vision and the mission of what you're trying to do. And it almost becomes a little bit philanthropic if you kind of get what I'm saying. They mm. kind of, you know, they're, they're backing somebody and, they're, and, and they like what they're, you know, what the potential outcome is and they're less worried about the return. I mean, they, they'll, they'll care, but. You know, I think that's that's probably the ideal scenario um, for, for digital health startups. Yeah, yeah. And what about in this current climate? You know, businesses are cutting back. Even in healthcare, it depends who you are, but in you know, some organisations are cutting right back. I think everyone knows someone who's either lost a job or had their hours reduced or something like that. If you're also at the same time just looking to raise capital as a health tech startup, or you've still got you you're 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 feeling entrepreneurial, looking to start up something yourself, is I guess it depends what it is, but is now a good time to do that or should we just be holding off and just waiting? Or like, do, do you think, so, like, is it just simply too risky for any health tech companies to start entering the market now? And is there simply just no investors out there or is there come some kind of middle ground, do you think? Look, I mean, look, it's, it's clearly an interesting time. I mean, it's, it's very volatile right now in the financial markets, as, as you'd be aware 
look, there's definitely a lot of money out there, right? Like, I mean, there's there's no shortage of capital out there waiting to be deployed. I think in an environment like this, where it's much more uncertain, and you know, like a lot of businesses will have seen a massive hit to their, you know, to their top or bottom line, and you know, so so all their metrics will be out, and it's, it's just a bit of a weird to be able to sort of present in a data room or you know to sort of say, hey, look, these are my numbers. So what will end up happening from even what we're seeing is that there's going to be massive valuation rewrites, right? So, you know, expectations around um, valuation should be really pet back, right? There are a lot of lower valuations being seen. There are a lot of value investors that are coming out of the woodwork who are looking for a deal. And, and you know, so there is money, but at a, at a very, very low price. And I think that, you know, people are, you know, needing to sort of, sort of expect that. But I think we're fairly lucky, right? I mean, healthcare as a sector, I mean, it's, it's really prominent in the news right now. Everybody cares about like, you know, healthcare and, and, and tech is obviously a growth area that, you know, people still have belief in. So, you know, health and tech are really sort of an ideal um, sort of sectors, I guess, to sort of take advantage of, you know, as a silver lining, this COVID stuff, which, you know, no, no doubt telehealth startups and, you know, these sorts of guys are, are seeing a lot of interest right now. So, so absolutely, I think that you know there's 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 opportunities and investors out there. So you know there's no reason to not try to raise capital in this environment. In in some ways, you know, I mean, even Health Engine, we you know over the time we have actually seen a crisis like this before. It was called the GFC, right? Mm. And so you know, like um, and, and we were you know we actually almost kind of resurrected the business around that time. And and a lot of startups have been born out of crisis and downturn. And and I guess to the extent that you know some people um, in the sector may have made, been made redundant or, you know, lost their jobs, whatever it is. In some ways, entrepreneurship often starts in times like that where you kind of go, well, actually, I'm a bit of a loose end. I've just been given a chunk of change. Maybe I'll just go and pursue the thing that I was always wanting to do for a while. I just never had the opportunity because I was stuck in a job, right? So, so look, you know, I, 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 look, given the, the, the lead times to actually get a successful digital health startup up, start now is what I say. And, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. so start yesterday. There's no, time like the, there's no time like the present, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, and uh, there's always opportunity in a crisis, right? So, get amongst yeah. it. That's right. Hey, look, you know, thinking about, Starting up a health tech, there's, you can either focus on the providers or you can focus on the consumers or like, you know, the patients, or I guess you can do both. You guys have done both. When you started, it sounds like you're very much focused on the provider. Doing something that was consumer focused back then probably would have been kind of a, probably a bad, not a bad idea, but there wouldn't have been a great market for it. You know, how have you seen that kind of transition from a provider centric healthcare environment to a patient centric one particularly for from a from a software and technology perspective and how has that played out and what's your kind of position on it um, on it today yeah so i mean that's a great question and it's actually a perennial problem that we've been facing you know because i mean in in many ways as a platform we have a demand side a supply side we you know we have many constituents patients are centered to that but our providers are actually the ones who are our key customers. They're the ones who basically pay us. And I think you'll find that most digital health startups are that way because frankly, it's hard to get money out of patients, right? Like, you know, they kind of see, especially in Australia where they kind of look at patients kind of see healthcare as a right. And it's something that they, you know, that, um, that is generally delivered for free or, you know, at, at very low cost paying for healthcare is a bit of a grudge buy, right? Yeah. So, so actually getting money from the consumer is actually quite hard. So naturally, a lot of health, digital health startups tend to gravitate towards having providers as their customers mm. um, and building tech and software for them makes sense. Uh, it, it really does. The, the, the problem is, I think, is that over time, you know, the consumer has such a, a strong influence now on, you know, who they go and see and, and why. And, and, you know, the, the power has shifted somewhat, I think, in healthcare. It's been slow, but I think it's starting to, to, to emerge where consumers now have a choice and they want to. You know, and, and they also see in their other, the rest of their consumer lives, you know, other tech that they use being slick. It's kind of painless. It's seamless. It's, 
you know, why is it not happening in healthcare? And they'll start to make choices around the practices and the providers who actually adopt, you know, and provide the experience that is cons- more commensurate with their normal consumer lives increasingly. So, you know, as much as, you know, we started off as a, as a provider directory helping GPs, you know, find specialists, over time, you know, as surprised as I've been, as you know, more and more consumers use the site, you sort of go, actually, you know, we need to understand what consumers are wanting, you know, what the UX and the UI is going to have to look like to make it sort of something that they'll adopt and reflect that in the, in the provider product so that, so in effect, we're actually helping providers sort of deliver a product that's more consumer friendly. And, you know, we're sort of facilitators and enablers of that. But it is hard. It's incredibly hard to balance that up because there are times where, strangely enough, our providers aren't always as consumer-centric or or patient-centric as they should be. (laughs) (laughs) So they'll ask for all sorts of things. So you kind of go, that's not good for the patient. It's like, you know, yeah, but it's good for us. But, you know, but so, so yeah, trying to sort of find that balance isn't easy, actually. Yeah, yeah. it's a hard job. It's a hard job. Hey, look, rounding things out, Marcus, just looking into the future for Health Engine, what's on the horizon for you guys in the next, I don't know, three, six, 12 months? Well, I think it's actually pretty un, 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 unhelpful right now to try and predict three to six months because I'm not even sure I'm going to be working <laughs> for you know, I was going to change that to three, six three to six hours. Months. Like, you know, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah things changing on a, on a very rapid scale. But look, yeah. I think, you know, we're, we're, we're in a, we're, we're in an interesting place. I think we've been very lucky to um, attract a lot of, um, you know, consumers on the platform. And sort of, we've been very lucky again to have some, you know, loyal customers and providers actually be on the platform. So I think for us, a lot of it's just being an open platform. We're looking to partner um, quite heavily with lots of other players. Having a distribution network like we have means that a lot of digital health startups maybe have the opportunity to access a much broader network more quickly than maybe they might have otherwise just trying to do it themselves. And for us, it's really just partnering. I think it's probably the, the, the way to go because mm-hmm. um, we can't do it all. Health's just far too large. And, you know, but, you know, we've built up a platform now that allows healthcare to be, to be better delivered through lots of different tools. And we'll just work with those people who are delivering those tools. Excellent. Now, look, Marcus, I really appreciate the time. I'll put some notes into the uh, the show notes for people who want to check out some more about what you guys are doing and, and good luck with everything happening. And thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thanks, Pete. Stay safe. Catch you later. You too. Thanks for listening to Talking Health Tech. My name is Peter Birch. Go check out the website, contribute to the forum, listen to other episodes and get in touch with feedback about the show because collaboration starts with a conversation. Speak to you next time.